You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Episode number 45 now of the Understanding God's Righteousness series by Brother Jim Dillingham from Cranston, USA. This series, this episode is called The Principle of Faith. The Bible says that without faith it is impossible to please God. But what is that faith that is required? Jesus certainly complains of a faith being too small. What is God's policy about providing validations for his required faith? We're now moving on to another aspect of God's righteousness, uh, and that is the principle of faith. Uh, This is a very basic component for the hope of salvation. Um, Hebrews 11 and 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, faith is, is certainly a requirement of salvation. In Ephesians 2 we read, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Let's be careful about that word saved. Just like love and righteousness and faith, there are different applications in scripture to the concept of being saved. Being saved is not necessarily the equivalent of an eternal salvation. That should be a fairly simple observation in scripture, but apparently that's not the case. The term save is certainly used in applications that do not refer to eternal salvation. Jude prophesies how there will always be false teachers within the enlightened community, uh, and he leads off with this limited understanding of being saved. In verse 5, Jude says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. The children of Israel were saved from slavery in Egypt, but that saved state was forfeited when they were unfaithful in their faithless and cowardly refusal to inherit the promised land. The disciples in the storm-tossed boat cried out to Jesus to save them from the immediate danger of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew chapter 8, we read, And his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. In fact, Jesus even equates saving ourselves with destruction. He says in Matthew 16, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. This, of course, uh, is the difference between a life of indulgence 
and a life of faithful sacrifice. One who saves his life in this context is one who concentrates on the immediate advantages of this life. That life will be lost in the eternal context. This is the lesson of the two great blood laws that we've referenced in the past. The two great blood laws were that one was forbidden to eat blood, which God defined as representing our mortal lives. That, that defined what could not be done with the blood. It could not be consumed. That other law was that the blood of a sacrificial clean animal had to be poured out at the altar of burnt offering, that Christ altar. However, the blood of the clean animals that were not sacrificial animals, the undomesticated wild animals, had to be poured out into the dust and covered with dust. Just as blood represents mortal life, the dust is the symbol of death as in dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. Those who choose to save their own lives to concentrate on immediate value, immediate advantage, indulging in this life, will lose their lives on a larger and eternal scale. Those who lose their lives for Christ's sake, pouring out our lives on the basis of faith, in the far greater advantages of a future life, like pouring out our blood at the feet of Jesus Christ, as the sacrificial blood was done at the altar. These people of faith will find that life, as Jesus declares, and therefore experience salvation on a separate level, not immediate, but eternal. Faith can save us. But there's more than one application of being saved. This is the immediate application of being saved in James chapter 5, where James writes, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the ecclesia, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. This saving of the sick is simply being saved from the effects of a disease and not an eternal salvation. Last week, when we considered the comfort that Paul offered sisters about being saved in childbearing, we noted both of these being saved applications in the context of how a woman is not subject to her children, but she has authority over her sons, but there was also the avenue of eternal salvation afforded through the virgin birth of our Savior. Both aspects of being saved is demonstrated in the procedure of childbearing, both temporary and permanent. Even the societies of the sons of men use this term saved in both a minor temporary application and uh, in through paganized Christianity in the context of a presumed eternal salvation. Sportscasters will express an amazing baseball catch as a great save, or how a home run saved the game for a certain team, or one defensive football play saved a team's victory. So the first thing to recognize about a faith that saves is that this can be both temporary as well as eternal. The Jewish slaves were saved, but then they were destroyed in the wilderness. 
we have to beware that great weapon of the default serpent perspective that we're all born with oversimplification. A presumption of or a preference for simplicity is the first step to progressive errors in understanding God's righteousness. So, as always, we have some questions about this principle of faith that we'll need to address. First, of course, what is faith? <laughs> and secondly, what is the difference between what Scripture defines as the faith and a faith? Thirdly, is faith variable? Do we just have it or don't have it? Fourth, how much faith is enough? Fifth, what constitutes a weak faith, as we heard Jesus reference in the storm-tossed boat? Um, six, how, how can we grow our own faith? Seventh, can we be forgiven for a weak faith? And eighth, why does God intentionally try our faith? So, our first question to address is, what exactly is faith? Faith is basically believing, having confidence, trusting in the integrity of an understanding or a person or God. For once, our dictionaries actually agree with the Bible understanding of this term. We often read of the faith of Abraham. He believed the testimony of God. He did not adopt a perspective of sitting back to see what might happen. But Abraham had complete confidence in the testimony of God. We read of how that confidence, that faith, had great value with God. In Genesis 15, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, your exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me you have given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if you be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall your seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted to him for righteousness. Now this is after the promises that God made to Abram about having an abundance of children like, like the sand of the shore, like the dust of the earth. But this was still prior to even the birth of Ishmael and long before the birth of Isaac, which was 25 years after that original promise was made. By this time, Abram may have wondered when he might have these children, as if as it had been some time since the promise of many descendants was made to him. But with the repeated promise and in a new parallel context, the stars of heaven. Abram's, Abraham's confidence, his faith, was assured. As a confirmation of God's promise, 
we have that wonderful heaven and earth covenant ritual that follows. Just as God paralleled the descendants of Abraham to both the dust of the earth, chapter 13, and the stars of heaven, here in chapter 15, so there are two categories of animals in this heaven and earth covenant ritual. Those three beasts of the earth that are cleaved in two, and the two whole fowl of heaven. What should be respected here is that Abram is rewarded for his faith, his confidence in the integrity of God's promise. We've considered just a few of the heavenly substance uh, issues casting the earthly shadows of this covenant ritual in previous classes. This ritual initiates patterns that, are abs that absolutely saturate both avenues of God's testimony, both scripture and creation, both the written word and the spoken word of God. That heaven and earth frame for these promises is demonstrated all through scripture. In uh, Joseph's dreams, in how Israel is repeatedly defined in the terms of the dust of the earth and the stars of heaven, and why the kingdom is referred to as heaven and earth, and how the second kingdom is, is referred to in Isaiah 65 as a new heaven, a new earth. But the third application is only referred to as a new heaven, uh, or actually specifically the third heaven, because that is as Paul refers to it, because that's after death is eliminated. So there are both immediate and long-term advantages in having faith in God's testimony. Just because we are currently in the period of, of God's self-imposed divine silence does not mean this equation of both temporary and eternal advantages are not available to us as well, validating and encouraging our confidence, our belief, our faith in God's testimony and his promises, just in more subtle ways. This confidence and faith was the issue with Gideon, the divinely appointed judge who saved Israel from the Midianite marauders. A great deal of faith was required of Gideon to lead 300 farmers and merchants against 135,000 Midianite military invaders. Gideon asked for confirmation to solidify his faith. Again, God is still silent in this generation, but he is still active. So this is a valid lesson in faith bolstering for us to consider. When the angel first came to Gideon to commission him to save Israel, Gideon objected on the basis of the absence of his qualifications and his social status within the enlightened community. We read in Judges chapter 6, Oh my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Now, this was the half-tribe of Manasseh, <laughs> uh, as Manasseh was split due to half the tribe remaining on the east side of Jordan with the tribes of Reuben and Gad. Manasseh was the first son of Joseph, who had been passed over by Jacob, who appointed Manasseh's younger brother Ephraim to be the firstborn. So Manasseh was the least of the tribes and split in half. Gideon reported his family was very poor 
among the families of Manasseh, and that he was considered the very least in his own family. Gideon responded to the angel that he was the biggest nobody in the entire nation. What he didn't realize was that made Gideon perfect for the job. The angel responded to Gideon's objection by saying, surely I will be with you and you shall smite the Midianites as one man. The comfort was God was going to help and Gideon would succeed. So Gideon asked for a, a greater confirmation than just a verbal promise. And we read, and he, and he said unto him, if now I have found grace in your sight, then show me a sign that you talk with me. Depart not hence, I pray you, until I come unto you and bring forth my present and set it before you. And he said, I will tarry until you come again. So the angel incinerates the flesh, broth, and unleavened bread that Gideon had brought for him, and the angel disappears. Gideon is finally convinced that this was an angel of God, not just a prophet, but he panics <laughs> that he will die because he has seen God. And the angel, although not visible, comforts Gideon that he's not going to die. It appears this was evening, as the timestamp for the next angelic communication with Gideon is described as being later that night. Perhaps Gideon has, had been threshing the wheat in the darkness as well as by the winepress in order to escape the eyes of others. He is instructed to destroy the apostate idol and the grove that were being worshipped in addition to Yahweh by his father's household as well as the others in the immediate community. Now, this was an act of faith. It was death-defying. Unsurprisingly, the offended community wants to kill Gideon for this disrespect to their pagan preferences. Now, this is the reason why Gideon and the ten men who helped him did this at night. Gideon is defended by his father, who belittles those who trust in Baal by saying, let Baal exact his own re revenge. If he's a legitimate god that deserves respect, Gideon is already beginning to inspire others due to his faith, his confidence in his ability to perform what the angel has demanded from him. I would assume Gideon shared his experience with the angel and his assignment with the local residents of Abbezer. It would have been commonly known that the Midianites had assembled once again, as they had done seven years in a row, to attack the tribes of Israel to destroy and loot and kill. When Gideon summons everyone with the trumpet signal to assemble, the Abai Israelites come. This is also true of, of other tribes that are summoned to assemble. It appears there's a leader for them to follow. In the pattern of past, God appointed judges like, like Deborah and Barak, like Ehud, the Benjaminite, and Othniel, the nephew of Caleb. Thousands assemble from various tribes. Gideon apparently begins to feel a little overwhelmed, which seems quite reasonable. Gideon asks 
for another, another faith-assuring accommodation. This, too, is reasonable. God certainly provides faith-assuring confirmations. The problem is if we ignore them or don't respond in accordance with the power of that faith-assuring experience. Israel saw the ten plagues in Egypt being spared from the last seven. They walked between the water walls of the Red Sea and saw the witness the Egyptian cavalry eliminated in front of them. They ate the miraculously provided manna every day. They were provided with quail to feed over two million people. They heard the voice of God from the burning mountain. But then they let their fear, faithless fear, overwhelm them when they heard the evil report of the ten spies and decided to return to slavery in Egypt from which God had saved them. God spared their lives from an immediate execution due to Moses' prayer, but he did condemn that entire generation of the cowardly, unfaithful men of war to die in the wilderness. So Gideon asked for a couple of private signs, not something that would exalt him in the eyes of those thousands of fellow Israelites, just a couple of signs for him personally. He simply asked that a fleece on the ground be wet with dew in the morning, but the ground surrounding the fleece would be dry. And he asked for exactly the opposite the next day. God complied. This was enough for Gideon to get all the way to the Midianite encampment with only 300 men. Gideon had not asked for another sign from God to bolster his faith or to exalt himself in the eyes of the men who followed him. But God graciously provided a faith-assuring experience anyway. Gideon and Purah crept down close to the camp perimeter, possibly a guard post, and heard the one soldier tell his dream, and the other soldier interpret the dream as Gideon defeating the very army in which they served. This was the faith-bolstering assurance that Gideon had needed, and we all, we all know this story how the 135,000 Midianite and Amalekite mercenaries packed and fought each other in the dark, killing 120,000 of their army. Gideon and his 300 farmers and merchants, who had not personally killed a single man, apparently, pursued after the remaining 15,000 soldiers. Gideon was victorious because God fought for him due to the fact that Gideon was faithful. He believed God's promise of support. He was confident enough to put himself and others in a degree of danger that would ordinarily be suicidal. This is faith. That confidence that dismisses the rationalizing, that converting or lack of faith into a supposedly justifiable excuse. This faith eroding rationalizing is the process of searing our conscience. Now, this conscience was our gift from God when the condemnation of death was imposed on our original ancestors, when our nature was changed from undying and very good to death-assured 
and cursed by sin. That serpent frame of reference became our default thought process based in heart-generated thinking. Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness after choosing the serpent's rightness and rejecting God's righteousness. This shame of nakedness was the first reaction uh, resulting from this new experience of having a conscience. Faith is supposed to be a fuel for the operation of our conscience, protecting us from the natural self-worshipping serpent thought process issuing from our hearts that cannot be completely eliminated without death or immortalization. It is the suppression of conscience that encourages the development of incorrect understandings about the terms of God's righteousness. Paul's very powerful prophecy to Timothy about the development of apostasy from within the enlightened community describes this effect. First Timothy 4, we read the prophecy, Now the Spirit speaks expressly, that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, or demons as it says, uh, daemonian, um, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth, the truth. Those hypocritical lies about priestly celibacy and fish on Fridays and doctrines about demon possession are empowered by a seared conscience. Not a sensitive conscience, but a deadened conscience. This is how lies slither into the enlightened community. Before the pandemic, I witnessed this deadened conscience demonstrated every week after memorial service ended. As many as half of the members of my ecclesia would turn their backs and walk away before Sunday school started, when the terms of God's righteousness would be considered in one way or another. Incredibly, there was little or no shame. Their consciences were seared. We now experience an accelerating challenge to many features of God's righteousness within the enlightened community all over the world, just as we've been repeatedly warned by scripture concerning our last generation of the ecclesial age. If we want to personally avoid this effect, then our consciences have to be empowered, to be very sensitive. And the way to do this is through faith to make it all real. And faith is not powerful without validation. And it is God's policy to offer validations to, to us to, to build faith and to slice away, painfully, slice away that sometimes crusted over surface of our conscience. We have our faith validations today, as the enlightened community has enjoyed in past generations. They are both corporate and personal, uh, both for the entire enlightened community but also very personal, individual validations 
for each of us, just as Gideon asked for. That's God's pattern. These personal validations are more subtle at this time as God is still maintaining his silence. We have no prophets, no miracles, no dreams or visions unlike the, uh, the first two generations of the ecclesial age. But we have something greater than those Holy Spirit gifts of prophesying and healing and miraculous uh, barrier-free communication. We have the completed written words of God, the whole Bible. And our generation has more of a capacity to hear the confirming testimony of creation than any generation that ever existed before us due to our far greater level of scientific knowledge about those features and that operating structure of creation that are defined in scripture and paralleled to heavenly principles. We are told by God that this validating power of what we have been given is greater than even those Holy Spirit gifts that were available at the beginning of this divine age. In 1 Corinthians 13, in the middle of Paul's um, uh, dealing with the Holy Spirit abuses in the Corinthian Ecclesia, um, in chapter 13, he defines what is greater than these spirit gifts. He says, love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, uh, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now the English word perfect is, uh, is translated from the Greek, and Greek word teleos, which simply means mature or complete or finished. The same word is translated entirely differently in the very next chapter. In chapter 14, this word is translated as men. Uh, it says, Brethren, be not children in understanding, albeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Paul advises the ecclesia in malice, well, be little children, immature, not fully formed, but in understanding be mature men, teleos simply meaning mature or fully formed. So Paul prophesies that something greater will take the place of the Holy Spirit gifts. Something perfect, mature, fully formed, finished. This, of course, was the whole Bible. The Apostle John was the last contributor with the book of Revelation. Our provision from God for a miraculous faith validation is the entire Bible, which, according to God, has the capacity to be more powerful a faith fuel than the miraculous healings and communication and prophesying gifts of the first century ecclesia. The difference, in my perspective, is the sustainability of that inspiration. Look at all the miracles that Jesus performed in the 42 months of his ministry since he was given that power without measure at his baptism. Obviously, those miracles did not have a very powerful convincing effect on the enlightened community. It appears Jesus became rather aggravated by the, 
by the endless hunger for more and more miraculous validations. Um, in Matthew 12, it says, Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from you. But he answered and said unto them, And an evil and adulterous generation. Now, keep in mind, he's talking about the enlightened community. And an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. With all the miraculous validations that Jesus had provided, the thirst for additional validations was never satisfied. More, more, more! It seems to be very much the same today. Our enlightened community today appears to be insatiable for what we call signs of the times in relation to the return of Christ. Often these proposed signs are over-exaggerated rather significantly. And we have been given signs for our generation, uh, the greatest being the resurrection of the nation of Israel, in the exact pattern that Ezekiel prophesied, and within a set of timestamps that perfectly blends with everything else in God's testimony. We shouldn't need manufactured faith boosters that have very little real substance. The greatest faith-assuring gift that God has provided for our generation is his written testimony. For me, it is the hidden glory in those two witnesses of God that's unseen by all the unenlightened and sadly a great many of the enlightened communities. This hidden glory that is shielded by God for the exclusive review of those always few within the enlightened community who develop seeing eyes and hearing ears. That hidden glory that is dependent on understanding God's righteousness, dependent on a respect for the, for the principle of absolute truth as opposed to respecting opinions, dependent on trembling at God's words, dependent on that necessary meekness that elevates God above the imaginations of our hearts, that glory that is revealed in the three-dimensional perfection in all of God's testimony through that harmony that can be witnessed between both witnesses, the Bible and creation. The Bible is the greatest fuel for developing that faith without which we cannot please God. Faith is an absolute requirement for salvation. And this isn't, this isn't exactly a revelation. Um, Romans tells us that the just shall live by faith. The just are those within the enlightened community who will be immortalized, those who will be called the saints. Jesus defines that second resurrection category uh, that provides a recompense in Luke chapter 14. Uh, Jesus says, but when you make a feast, Call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, 
and you shall be blessed, for they cannot recompense you. For you shall be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. The resurrection back to mortality before, before judgment, well, that's not a recompense. The resurrection, uh, that resurrection is, is on the basis of vindicating God's righteousness. Paul describes that to Felix as a resurrection of both the just, unjust and the just. It is the second resurrection category to immortality that is reserved exclusively for the just. And the just are going to live on the basis of faith. It is our faith that justifies us before God. Our justification is not some kind of automatic result from a common baptism or participating in an ecclesial memorial service. Justification is a personal issue. Just like our judgment, when our personal, individual words and deeds will be reviewed at our judgment before our judge, just as our faith that can justify is a personal issue. But faith alone is not meaningful, and it's not even capable of justifying all by itself. In James 2, we're told, um, you see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them away out another way? For as the body without the spirit, breath, is dead, so faith without works is dead also. We have addressed this issue before when, when considering the issue of righteousness and particularly personal righteousness. Um, but from the perspective of faith as opposed to righteousness, we have to recognize that the only legitimate faith is a proven faith. If we merely profess to have faith, but have no demonstrations of that faith in our lives, then our faith is nothing but a dead faith, as James describes to the enlightened community. So faith is basically confidence, trust, a power that overcomes fears, difficulties, challenges. And God demands that we trust him. But it isn't like he doesn't provide reasons to trust him. If we're willing to look for those validations and also not dismiss them quickly and demand more and more reasons or demonstrations that will encourage our trust in him, like the Christadelphians in that generation of Christ ministry, always asking for another sign and another sign and another sign. So let's uh, address question number two. It's a little bit different. Uh, and that's what is the difference between the faith and a faith? There are two separate applications for this question. One is an understanding of what it is that we're supposed to have faith in. Basically, the first principles of the terms of God's righteousness. The option of using the definite article, the faith, as opposed to the indefinite article of a faith, 
addresses the issue of whether or not truth is a component of faith. The other application would be the kind of faith we're supposed to demonstrate before God, as opposed to the actual issues we're supposed to have confidence in being correct or not. The question, uh, our question addresses both applications. Uh, does what we believe in or have faith in really matter? And secondly, is there an intensity of faith or confidence that would satisfy using the definite article, the level of faith, that will qualify us for life and justification and acceptance by Jesus Christ, or just any level of faith, since there may be no ground floor for acceptability if we're part of the enlightened community, which sadly seems to be a very common presumption in our community currently. As for the definite article, the being applied to that which we have confidence in, that faith by which the just shall live, this is quite easy to confirm. Using the definite article in relation to faith in this context is confirmed in the fact that there's only one gospel, only one set of correct understandings about God's righteousness that is going to lead to life. We're told this very clearly in Ephesians 4, there's one body and one spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is above all and through you all, through all and in you all. Just as there's only one God that is above all others, there's only one faith, and this is a very basic understanding of our enlightened community. We are not free to believe anything we wish about the terms of God's righteousness. We are repeatedly told God is jealous for our attention, our focus, our exclusive worship, and our love. One of the basic reasons for God's demand for truth, for understanding him correctly, is that challenges to the integrity of the one faith are all divinely disrespectful. And <laughs> actually rather insulting. This is the case with the serpent understanding that, well, we don't really die. This is the doctrine of the immortality of the soul, which declares that the serpent told the truth in the garden and God lied about Adam and Eve actually dying. The doctrine of the Trinity declares that, well, God reversed the original creation template of wanting man to be in his image and likeness and chose to recalibrate himself into man's image and likeness, being the standard to which he must conform, lying about being a real human being, lying about having the capacity to be tempted, lying about dying, which is impossible for an immortal, and lying about a supposed resurrection from a death that could, would have been impossible in the first place. The doctrine of the wicked immortal angel Lucifer, or Satan, declares that either Jesus or God are not telling the truth because Jesus declared that angels cannot die. This is in his answer to the silly Sadducee question about the woman with seven brother husbands. And he says, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrect resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, 
Even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Um, so Jesus identifies this insult when you don't believe in the resurrection, as the Sadducees did not. Then, you're, then you are defining God as a God of the dead, like, like Hades and Pluto and Anubis and Kali um, <laughs> or Lucifer. Or, or Satan, uh, these imaginary gods. Uh, he's not a god of the dead, but of the living. And that proves the principle of the resurrection because he's called the Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But Jesus particularly says that angels cannot die. And God says that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6. If someone sins, then they have to die. But angels do not have the capacity to die. Therefore, it is not possible that they can sin, or they would have to die, which is impossible, according to Jesus. So if we want to believe in the false doctrine of a fallen, wicked angel, Satan or Lucifer, then we are insulting either God or Jesus by claiming one of them is presenting false testimony. This is the effect of all contradictions to that one faith, the faith. This is why God requires truth. One of the endlessly resurfacing corruptions of that one faith from within the enlightened community over the last 125 years has been the insistence that death was part of that original very good creation order. That contradiction of God's righteousness declares that what Scripture defines as the last enemy, death, actually qualifies as, as being very good in God's eyes. And even touching a dead body under the laws of the first kingdom of God demanded participation in two sin offerings over seven days. But we were asked to believe that this physically defiling death condition was actually part of what God declared to be very good before sin corrupted everything. This is the effect of denying that one truth, the faith, that it's insulting to God. This is why he demands uh, the understanding of, of uh, that, that one gospel, the, the faith. All contradictions to the terms of God's righteousness, his rightness, are divinely disrespectful. So yes, there's only one faith, the faith, and God demands that those who worship him must worship him in truth. And this is exactly what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, that God is a spirit and that they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. However, that other aspect of faith not the issues in which to be confident, uh, the faith, but our degree of confidence, that th this is actually variable. But there is a floor. There is a level of faith that is unacceptable and a level of faith that is acceptable. And this is going to have to be our focus of consideration in our next class.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.